In your pew Bible, page 830, or on your large print sheets also. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Death. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not want from your command. My word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now, my friends, uh, today we're going to be focusing on verse 15, on verse 15 of Psalm 119. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. And what we see in this little verse is that the psalmist vows, vows to meditate on God's word. The psalmist vows, promises that he will meditate on God's word. Now you're probably aware of the fact that Psalm 119 deals primarily, almost exclusively, with Scripture or with the Word of God. Now, you notice that I, before I started verse 9, that I, I read Beth. Now, that's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, children, I won't ask you to give me your ABCs, but I know Sawyer could do it. I know Sawyer could tell us A, B, C, D, and so forth, all the way through to Z, right? Or Z if you're from Britain, okay? A to Z. 26 letters in the English alphabet. But if you notice here, in Psalm 119, so if you go back, see where it says Psalm 119 before verse 1, Aleph. Well, that's the first letter. And they come down to just before verse 9, that's Beth. Go to the next page. Gimel, the next. Daleth, Hay, the next page. Wa, or Va, the next. Zion, Heth, uh, Teth, Yod, and so forth. Okay? So there are 22, not 26, but there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, this is the longest psalm, the longest, we might say, chapter. It's not technically a chapter, but the longest psalm of the entire Bible. And there are 176 verses. Can you imagine memorizing this whole psalm? There are people that have done that, actually. Um, And uh, so 176 verses. And what that is is 8 times 22. So each of these sections is eight verses long. Each of these sections, the verses in each of these sections 
in the Hebrew starts with that particular letter of the alphabet. So if you're reading this in the Hebrew, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and so forth, all of them would start with the letter Aleph, or we would say A. The section we are in right now, Beth, all of them, verses 9 through 16, start with the letter Beth, and so forth, or we would say B. One person has put it this way, that this psalm, this psalm is a holy alphabet for Zion's scholars. A holy alphabet. So instead of just memorizing, instead of just memorizing the verses or the, the, um, the alphabet, it is all related, it is all related to this, uh, to the letters uh, in, the, uh, in this section. So, with that as an introduction, we're going to consider several questions today. We're going to consider what, how, where, and why. Okay? We're going to consider what, how, where, and why. So, first of all, what? What are we talking about here? When the psalmist says, I'll meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. What are we talking about? In Psalm 119, to refer to the Bible or to Scripture, uh, one commentator put it this way. <clears throat> one, one commentator put it this way. Like a ring of eight bells, like a ring of eight bells, eight synonyms for scripture dominate the psalm and the 22 stanzas will ring the changes on them that idea of ringing the changes you have you have um, uh, if you've seen some bells you know like at a big cathedral or a church or whatever and so go through the different ways in which those bells can be played and that's what this that's sort of what the psalm is doing here it, they will, it will ring the changes, just like, a, like a bells, you, you know, the, the pulling of the ropes in terms of ringing the bells. Well, it's going to go through every possible combination, every possible arrangement. That's what the commentator says. He goes on to say they will do it freely, not with an elaborate formulae. They'll introduce an occasional extra term, but the Synonyms, the same, the synonymous terms belong together. And uh, so this all adds then to our total understanding of what Scripture is. So as we look at Psalm 119, what are the terms that are used to talk about Scripture? The first one is law or Torah, T O R A, or T O R A H. This is the chief term, law. The chief, there are two basic meanings. One is law, whether one law or a whole body of law. And children, what do you expect when your parents lay down the law? You expect that you're going, they expect that you're going to obey them, right? Well, law implies obedience. But it also, the, the word also means, also refers to revelation. It refers, it actually is related to the idea of teaching. So it is law, 
but it is revealing something about God and his relationship to us. The second word is testimonies, adot, testimonies, witnesses. Deuteronomy 31, 26, the book of the law was to be placed beside the Ark of the Covenant as a witness. So God bears witness in his word. He bears witness to you and to me. He bears witness to all of us in his word, testimonies. Third word is precepts, picudin. The word is drawn uh, from the idea of an officer or an overseer who's responsible to look closely into a situation and take action. So you can think of a, of a, a drill sergeant, perhaps, if you're in the Army or the Marines, or maybe a supervisor in a factory or on a farm, and so that person needs to know what's going on, and he's responsible then to look into, to see what's going on, to look into the, uh, uh, the matters, and then actually to take action. So the precepts. God's word, therefore, points to the particular instructions of the Lord, the precepts, as of one who cares about detail. Fourth term is statutes, not statues, statutes, who came, in which the binding force and permanence of Scripture are emphasized. The binding force. So it's not just that they are laws, but they have a permanence. They are binding upon us. They are like laws that are engraved or inscribed. And so you go perhaps to a monument and uh, you'll see, you'll see um, uh, words that are inscribed on that. Why are they inscribed in the granite? To emphasize the fact, to, to make sure the fact that they're going to remain. They are permanent. They're not painted on. Uh, they're not put on with decals. Rather, they are engraved. They are inscribed. That's the point, the statutes. The fifth word is commandments, miswot. Miswot in the Hebrew, the straight authority of what is said. Not merely, therefore, the power to convince or persuade, but the right to give orders. Why do we follow the commandments of those who are above us? Why do we follow their commands? Because they have a right to give us commands. So the Lord has a right to command us. Sixthly, ordinances, mispatim, ordinances or judgments. These are the decisions of the all-wise judge, who is God, about common human situations and therefore how we are to act towards others, the rights and the duties appropriate to them. Again, to go back to children, this for a moment. Children, you have duties and responsibilities to your parents. Parents, you have duties and responsibilities to your children. And the same, of course, is true in terms of employer-employee relations, in terms of husband-wife, and so forth. And so ordinances. The seventh word is word, or dabar, which is related to the concept of speech. This is perhaps the most general term of all, devar, word. The eighth major term is promise or imra, 
that is derived from the verb to say. The idea here is that God is faithful to his word. Now, there are other terms that are used. Ways, the ways of God. Or even thy name, God reveals himself through his name. Or thy faithfulness. But these eight, then, are the major terms. And all of them, then, put together, as we suggested, are like a bell ringer who, or like a set of bell ringers, uh, who get together and they give all of these, they give all of these, um, um, they give all of these, uh, um, like, like a set of bell ringers, who ring the bells, who ring the changes, who go through all the possible combinations, if you will, uh, in terms of this. But besides these terms, we also want to talk about the nature of Scripture. First of all, it is human. Why do we say it's human? Well, because it comes to us in human language. It comes to us in human language. And it was written by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it's it's revelation to us, and God uses people, God uses men to write his word. But fundamentally, it is God's word. It is divine. It is the word of the Lord, and it is therefore, to use a term that we hear today, it is awesome. You heard that word before? It gets, it gets overused, but the Bible uses it in a true sense. Psalm 119, verse 161, princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of thy word. And so it is awesome because it is the word of God. You notice also verse 120, my flesh trembles for fear of thee. The New English Bible says, the dread of thee makes my flesh creep. Isn't that an interesting concept? There's something a little awesome, more than something a little awesome, about the word of God. It is inspired. That is to say, it is God-breathed. Pneustos is the Greek word for that. God-breathed. It is written by the Holy Spirit. And that oration applies to all of Scripture, and it applies to every particular part of Scripture, to ev- indeed to every word of Scripture. And because it is inspired, and because it is the word of the Lord, it is inerrant and infallible. It is inerrant. It has no errors in it. And it is infallible. There's no possibility of errors. So you go out and see the, uh, you see a baseball game, and uh, the third baseman box there goes through the entire game and doesn't make an error. Well, that's good. Um, however, you might go the next day and you'll see on the, uh, on the scoreboard E5, right, for the third baseman. <clears throat> so the third baseman or the shortstop, any of those players might be inerrant, without error, any given game, but none of them is infallible. But with Scripture, it not only is inerrant, no errors, but there is no possibility of error. 
So the first thing then, as we look at what, we want to consider it is the very word of God, and it has all of these different color, we might even say colorful dimensions, if you will, or, or different rings, again, going back to the idea of bells, different harmonies, different rings, ringing the changes on all of these concepts. Now, the second question we want to consider today is how. How? How are we to deal with the word of God? Well, as the psalmist says here in Psalm 119 and verse 15, I will meditate on thy precepts. So the word here for meditate means to chew it over. Okay? So if you, if you have a nice steak, okay, you're not going to want to wolf it down. What are you going to do? You're going to want to enjoy that sirloin, right? You're going to want to chew it over. You're going to want to meditate upon it. And so that's what the psalmist is saying. And so chewing it over, and indeed letting it be so much a part of you. Now Psalm 1, which also talks about the Word of God, Psalm 1 also uses the idea of meditation where we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He meditates. He chews it over. He thinks about it. He meditates. So, practical application of this meditating. Well, in order to meditate, in order to think about it, you have to read the Bible first. That's the first thing. You have to read it. And not only that, so you have to pick it up and you have to read it. But not only that, you have to read all the various parts of Scripture. Now, some people like to stick only with their favorite sections or even with their favorite chapters or verses, the 23rd Psalm or whatever. But rather, rather than that, it's nice to have favorites, but rather there has to be an effort to deal with all of the books and all of the different types of literature, all the different types. We have the first five books, the books of the law, which were the books of Moses, the next 12, the books of history, the next five, the books of poetry, including the Psalms, the next five, the major prophets, the next 12, the minor prophets. Then you get into the New Testament, the four Gospels, four biographical accounts of Jesus called Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then the book of Acts, which is a book of history. Then you have um, the epistles, the epistles, mostly by the Apostle Paul, but others as well, the letters. And then finally, as we had been going through recently, and I hope to start up again, the book of Revelation, which is both history and prophecy. And so you need to, to look through all of Scripture, but have a plan. More than that, as you meditate on it, you should begin to understand how these parts of Scripture fit together. For example... How are the books of Moses related to the books of history? 
How do the poetic books relate to the Gospels? What is the, we, say, we could say, the flow of redemptive history? Now, you know, I teach US, U.S. history, so we, we talk about the particulars of history. But we also want to talk about the overall theme, the overarching perspective in terms of history. So what is the flow of redemptive history, which is what the Bible is all about, is revealing God's way of salvation. And how does he do that in the Old Testament? How does he do that in the New Testament and so forth? And in this regard, you should begin to get a sense of the Bible's major themes. First of all, the book is about God. But the book is also, the Bible is also about man because man is made in God's image and God has chosen those out of humanity to be his people. Creation, the idea of creation. How did God create? How did God make this world? What is the nature of that? Providence, how does he preserve this world? How does he continue to act in this world? He's not a God that is way up there somewhere that is so far beyond us that he has nothing to do with this world. No. Even though he is totally transcendent, he is also very much involved in his providential dealings. Sin. Oh my. Sin. We need to know about sin. Because we're all sinners. Sin. And how we solve that problem? Salvation. Salvation through God's grace. Even the idea of covenant by which a holy and infinite God relates to us. So these are some of the major themes that you should think about as you do your reading of Scripture. You should know some basic rules of interpreting the Bible. Scripture interprets itself. It's its own best interpreter. We view obscure passages in light of the clear. We pay attention to the type of literature and to the context. And another good way of meditating upon Scripture is by memorizing Scripture. Pastor Strebel, that we were listening to today, uh, preach talked about memorization of scripture and so that is true we can memorize all kinds of things baseball and football statistics and scores and so forth all kinds of things we can memorize but we should place God's word in our heart as Psalm 119 verse 11 says we should hide it in our heart that we might not sin against him and so the first thing then, uh, in terms of how, in terms of, of the uh, whole issue of how, <clears throat> uh, is by meditating, but also notice something else. He doesn't just uh, say, uh, or it's not just the, the concept of meditating, but it's the concept of doing it wholeheartedly. That is to say, with all my heart. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 119, where the psalmist says, With my whole heart I have sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. In Psalm 138, 
and verse 1. Psalm 138, verse 1. David says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to thee. In Psalm 119, 14, verse 145, I cry out with my whole heart. See, we have a problem. We have a heart problem. The heart problem is not an irregular heartbeat or clogged arteries. The problem we have is that of a divided heart. What does that mean? It means we have divided and different loyalties. That's what sin is all about. We're not really following God with all our heart. So we have different loyalties. So how do we then get a united heart? How do we follow God with all our heart? Well, we diligently, we carefully deal with Scripture. And we also do so with anticipation. Psalm 119, verses 147 and 148. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in thy word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on thy word. So there's a priority there, isn't there? And also an anticipation. Before... Um, are awake through the night watches, hearing the changing of the guard, you see. They are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on my word. And of course we also do this with rejoicing. And let me just say that this is a struggle for many of us. Otherwise, it says, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. Now, let me just say but that, again, it goes back to a united heart, right? To rejoice in God's word. Not to rejoice in ourselves or in you know, our, our selfish desires, but to rejoice in the word of God. And so by meditating and by doing it wholeheartedly, that's how we meditate. That's how we respect the word of God. <clears throat> now, thirdly, where? Where is the, does this meditation take place? Well, it takes place in an alien and a hostile world. It takes place in an alien and a hostile world. Look at verse 22 of Psalm 119. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. The world doesn't want to hear about our beliefs. The world rejects our beliefs. The world even thinks that it is superior ethically to where we are as Christians because of our beliefs on a wide variety of issues, including particularly the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the absolutely essential nature of the gospel, the fact that there is only one way of salvation. And so we are subject to being derided, to derision, to contempt, Look at verse 23. Princes also sit and speak against me. Thy servant meditates on thy statutes. In other words, we're, we're subject to slander. We're subject to suffering. Verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to thy word. Verse 28. My soul melts from heaviness. 
strengthen me according to thy word. Verse 83, for I become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget thy statutes. And 141, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget thy precepts. So suffering. We are also those who are facing wicked. I defy the wicked for me to destroy me. But I will consider thy testimonies. We're in a world where God's word is not respected. Verse 126, it is time for thee to act, O Lord, for they have regarded thy law as void. God's word is not respected in this world. And it is in reacting to unbelief as well. Look at verse 53. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake thy law. Indignation. I get angry. 158, or verse 158. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep thy word. Perhaps most movingly, verse 136, rivers of water run down my eyes. I weep, I cry. Why? Because men do not keep thy law. And so where do we meditate in an alien and a hostile world? Now in the midst of hostility, the psalmist evidenced dependence upon scripture. He, evidence, he gave evidence of dependence upon Scripture. He kept on appealing to it as the very way of, of being committed to it. Remember, it's as a young man that David experienced these things. He certainly experienced them later, but as a young man, he, even as a young man, he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And my friends, this applies to families too. Families need to study the Bible. And so this is so that they can be built up in the faith and fight against Satan's attacks. So we've considered what, how, and where, and now, fourthly, we want to ask the question, why? Why do we meditate on Scripture? First of all, because it is God's Word. It is the law of the kingdom. It's the law of the kingdom. He is the king. He is the Lord of all. It's his world. He lays down the law. And he expects people to study his word so that they can understand more about him and more about what he expects of them. So let me look at just briefly at three or, or four themes here in this regard. First of all, liberation, freedom, liberation. If you look at verse 45, you see, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. And Psalm 96, I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceedingly broad. It's exceedingly wide. It's a wide avenue, if you will. You see, there's a paradox that true freedom comes only in service to God. True free. If you want to be free, if you want to be free, you need to be the servant, the bond servant of God. 
what are the characteristics then of this liberty? Well, for one thing, breaking the dominion of sin. Psalm 119, 133, direct my steps by thy word and let no iniquity have dominion rule over me. Now, think about this a minute. If you, if, when, you enco- when we encounter God, we are encountering, encountering a mind that is infinitely greater and with far greater insight, vision, and wisdom than our own. And so even though we are his servants, there is a liberty, there is a freedom that comes by means of that encounter. So liberation, secondly, light. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In verse 130, the entrance of thy words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. So, why do you have children? Why, as the Brits would say, a torch or a flashlight? Why do you have that? So you can, you can stare at it? No, what do you need to do? What you do is you use that in order to point where you're supposed to walk. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So it is not so much to bask in or to stare at it in a sense, but rather it is to help you in terms of your education, knowing about God in terms of your direction in life. And so the word of God then is a light. So that's another reason why we meditate upon it. It is also that which brings life. Cause me to live. Revive me. We find this all throughout Psalm 119, verses 17, 25, 37, 40, 144, 149, 154, 159, and so forth. Cause me to live. Revive me. We also have life in another sense. Remember, the enemies that David had wanted to kill him. And so when we are able to meditate upon the word, able to use it in terms of our spiritual warfare, this enables us to be preserved from our enemies. Preserve me from my enemies. How? By means of the word. And also grant me spiritual life as well. Now the psalmist is no legalist content merely with performing duties. And how many times, oh my friends, how many times has that been true of me and probably of you? Well, I've got to read the Bible today. That's good to read the Bible. But we need to recognize that it is as we read the Bible that we derive life from Christ. We derive life from God. The psalmist here desired God's revitalizing touch, the new life, which can come when David understood God's testimonies. And so it must be true with us, not simply getting through a Bible reading for the day, but understanding that it is our very life that is involved. So law, liberation, light, life, 
And finally, stability. Stability. Verses 49 and 50. Verses 49 and 50. Remember the word to thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction. For thy word has given me life. Verse 71 as well. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Good? It's good. Why? That I may learn thy statutes. See, there's comfort in affliction. There's comfort in affliction. And there is peace to those who are the righteous. Verse 165, great peace are those who love my law and nothing causes them to stumble. There is stability then. Now, by way of application today, the first thing I want to say is this. Notice that Bible reading with meditation is absolutely essential for the Christian. Bible reading with meditation is absolutely essential for the Christian. If you don't have time for it, make time. If you're too busy for it, you're too busy. This meditation is implied in the membership vows in the church. This commitment to study the word of God. The word is food for the soul and nourishment for the spirit. Prayer is like breathing. We breathe, you see. When we pray, we lift up our petitions to God. We cry out to God. It's like breathing, if you will. But the word is food for the soul and nourishment for the spirit. And so secondly then, because of noting that Bible reading with meditation is absolutely essential, secondly, do something about this. We're at the beginning of the second half of this year. So it's not January 1st, but it's around July 1st. So you've got half a year to make up for the first half. Do something about this. Resolve that this is going to be a priority item. That's the first thing. Secondly, get a good study Bible with cross-references and a good one-volume commentary on the whole Bible, if you don't have these, and use them. There are all kinds of tools available. There's a lot are on the Internet today as well, which is great. There is something about holding a book, I must say, though. And so get a good study Bible with cross-references Get a one-volume commentary of the whole Bible so when you come across a passage that you don't understand, you can see it explained. When you come across something you don't understand, look it up or ask questions. That's why, that's why elders are here. Also, as you read and meditate upon Scripture, seek to apply a truth from Scripture to your daily life. Is there an admonition, a Calling to, to a, us to account? Rebuke? Is there a warning? Pay attention to it. Is there a promise to claim? Is there instruction on what you ought to do in a given circumstance? And so, my friends, do something about it. Do it. Do it. Thirdly, by way of application, realize 
that life is to be found in the living word come in the flesh, or the living word incarnate. You see, all of Scripture points to the Son of God. All of Scripture points to the Son of God. And all of Scripture breathes of Christ and his Spirit. It's all, it's all about Jesus, ultimately. It breathes of Christ and his Spirit. The final thing I want to say in this regard is this. Jesus meditated on God's word par excellence. That is a fancy way of saying, without compare to anybody else, far excelling you or me. And he did so, he did so as our example. Scripture was a comfort to him. Scripture was how he fought against the devil. It is written, it is written, it is written, Jesus said, when the devil came to tempt him. It was a comfort to him. It was that which he used in the spiritual battle. But my friends, it also afflicted him. It afflicted him. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus could not meditate on that without thinking of the cross and his own death. When he was in the garden before he died, he prayed to the Father, not my will, but thine be done in terms of the word of God. And perhaps most movingly in this regard is the 118th Psalm. You know that Psalm 118 was part of the what's called the Egyptian Hillel, which was, which was a group of psalms sung at the Passover meal. So when Jesus, when Jesus, when Jesus then was having the last meal and institute with his disciples having or instituting the Lord's Supper, he and they would have sung the 118th Psalm. And I want to point to two verses in that regard. First of all, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Well, he knew he was about to be rejected. He knew he was about to be killed. And verse 27, towards the very end of it, God is the Lord, is Yahweh, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And so you see, Jesus, when he sang Psalm 118, was singing of his own death. He is the sacrifice. He is the one who was altered. He, he is the one who was killed. And so as he meditated on this, not only was it for our example, 
but it was also for our salvation because he had to be afflicted by the very word of God in order for him to be our savior. And so as you meditate upon scripture, think of Jesus and derive life from him and light from him who is the light of the world. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And now, our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take this word and would apply it. Oh, Father, we pray, unite our hearts, thy name to fear. Unite our hearts, thy name to praise. Father, we have divided hearts. Lord, we need thee. We need thee. So have mercy upon us. Enable us, O God, to meditate on thy word. Particularly, O oh God, to meditate the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name.